Welcome to Ricochet's Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute, The Week Magazine, and CNBC. Each week, the podcast features a lively conversation with top thinkers and doers on the most important and interesting economic and policy issues of our time. Archived episodes can be found at ricochet.com and follow-up blog posts and transcripts at AEI.org. My guest today is Pedro Domingos, a professor of computer science at the University of Washington and author of the book, The Master Algorithm, How the Quest for the Ultimate Learning Machine Will Remake Our World. He's an expert in artificial intelligence and data science and joins me today to discuss his book on machine learning and the implications of AI more broadly. Professor Domingos, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, in the uh, in the book, uh, you write, and this is sort of, a, I think, a lovely description, machine learning is something new under the sun, a technology that builds itself. And at its core, machine learning is about prediction, predicting what we want, the results of our actions, how to achieve our goals, how the world will change. Now, your book, I think, came out in 2016. And while it made the bookshelf of China's president in his New Year's address, I think at the start of this year, uh, I missed the book when it came out. The reason we're chatting today and I found out about the book was because Amazon recommended it to me. I, I had previous, I had bought a, a previous book uh, called Why Information Grows by uh, Cesar Hildago, who will also be a guest on an upcoming podcast. And when I bought that book, it recommended your book as something I would also like. So I bought it. Indeed, I, I, I liked it very much. Now, for that recommendation, I can thank machine learning, right? Exactly right. So machine learning tries to figure out what your tastes in books are. And clearly, in this case, it was a good call. So for example, why information grows, by the way, uh, I know Cesar well, he's a great guy, is related uh, to machine learning. So if you you know, read that book, you might like the master algorithm as well. And it seems that was a good call. Yeah, well, it absolutely was. Now, how, now, I suppose as a way of kind of explaining what machine learning is, how did that algorithm, Amazon, how did it do that? How did it figure out what I liked? Why was it so accurate? I don't know how the exact Amazon algorithm works. It has also changed over time. I've talked with people over there, you know, a lot over time, but of course they're secretive. But I can tell you in general how this kind of algorithm works. It works by finding people with similar tastes to yours. If I can find, you know, I'm Amazon, I have a record of, for example, all the books that you bought uh, and all the books that everybody else bought. And then what I look for is people who bought the same books as you in the past. And if they did, then that's probably a sign that they have similar tastes to yours. And then I look for books that they bought that you haven't. And then my hypothesis is that, well, if they have similar tastes to yours and they like this new book, say the master of them, maybe you will like it as well. And then I recommend it to you. Now, there are different, I mean, we talked about machine learning. Now, machine learning, as I understand it, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of AI. And, and under machine learning, and you talk about this in the book, there are sort of different versions of machine learning. So what kind probably was that, was the Amazon version? Yeah, so the kind that I was just talking about is what is often called analogical learning or, or learning by analogy, because it's finding similar things. You know, like in this case, I'm looking at a customer. And what I try to do is find similar customers in the past and then reason by analogy. Oh, if this person liked it and you're similar, then maybe you'll like it as well. Or more generally, I try to solve a new problem by finding old problems that I solved before and seeing how they're similar and then adapting the solution. So this is one of the major types of machine learning. And it's very widespread in these so-called recommender systems that include not just you know what Amazon has, but 
Netflix and Spotify and so on. But there, are, but there are again, there are other other kinds of uh, as of these as well. Do we are the, do you, do we run into those other kinds of machine learning in our everyday lives? Oh, absolutely. You run into all of these in their uh, you know many different applications. So another kind is what is called symbolic learning, uh, which in essence is learning by automating the scientific method. It's like having a computer do the job of a scientist, coming up with hypotheses, testing them, refining them, and so on. Another one very popular these days is um, uh, deep learning, which is reverse engineering the brain. Uh, we build a model of how the human brain works with neurons and how they're connected and how they adapt. And then we try to uh, create algorithms that work the same way. Another one is to simulate evolution, except that instead of evolving animals and plants, we're evolving programs and you know, electronic circuits and, and robots and so on. And, and another one is Bayesian learning, which comes from statistics, and it's all about uncertainty and quantifying with probability and then trying to measure it and, and you know, adjust it to evidence and so on. And, and what they all have in common, to get back to that sort of original uh, passage that I read, is that they're all, they're all a, t a, a kind of AI that builds itself. Uh, maybe I should have started asking what that meant, but so what do you mean that it builds itself? Well, traditional computer science, and this is how most of you know the information age was built uh, is made up of algorithms that people write down so i can get a computer to play chess by explaining to it step by step how it should play chess and i can get it to fly an airplane i can get it to control an atm all of these things but we have to program the computer in painstaking detail to do what we want it to do the difference in machine learning is that we actually don't have to program the computer anymore it figures out from data it figures out what to do by observing people. So, for example, it learns to drive a car, not because we program it, because actually we don't know how to program a computer to drive a car, but by observing video of the road and then what people did with the pedals and the, and the steering wheel and learning to do the same. So, in a way, it learns a little bit like a child learns, both by playing and by, uh, you know, interacting with its, with its parents and so on. So, machine learning is really a whole different way to get computers to do things for us, and it's very powerful. Because instead of it requiring our work, it just takes advantage of data. And as the amount of data available grows exponentially, the power of the learning also grows exponentially. And that's what we're seeing today. It is also just machine learning is also one kind uh, of AI. Why does it seem to be where sort of the action is right now, both in terms of advances uh, and also, uh, I would think, uh, venture capital funding, uh, they're very, very interested in this. Because as I understand it, and you know, I'm not the expert, is that throughout the history of AI, there's sort of been this kind of ebb and flow with different technologies sort of coming to the forefront, then receding, and then emerging uh, emerging uh, again. So wh why is machine learning seem to be where, like again, as I said, where the action in artificial intelligence is today? Yeah. So machine learning, so AI is about automating things that traditionally require human intelligence. Now think of all the capabilities of a human being. We can reason, uh, we can plan, we can make decisions, uh, we have common sense knowledge, we can see and understand speech and language, all of these things, you know, there's subfields of AI corresponding to each one of those things. But perhaps the most important of all the things that we humans do is to learn. And the reason machine learning is at the center of AI, while being indeed only a subfield of it, is that learning is what enables everything else. I can learn to plan, I can learn to see, I can learn to understand language and speech, uh, I can learn to, you know, I can learn common sense knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. 
So it's very powerful and it is very much at the center of Aya, and it's what's enabling the rest. As you say, however, it wasn't always like this. In the very early days of AI, in the 50s, the early days of computer science, a lot of people very much believed in machine learning as the way to create AI, but it turned out to be very hard. And then for the next 20, 30 years, people uh, fell into this other type of AI, which is often called knowledge engineering, where you really program the computer, say you wanted to do medical diagnosis, you interview doctors, you say, well, how do you diagnose this? And then you try to write down the rules. The, and you know, in the 80s, there was a previous, you know, what's called summer of AI, where it seemed like this was going to take over, but then it ran into what's called the knowledge acquisition bottleneck. There's too much knowledge, it's too difficult, too costly uh, to put it onto the computer, and this led to a revival of machine learning, where people said, well, instead of trying to acquire the knowledge from experts, let's just have the computers acquired from data and from experience, and that what and that is what has led to the modern era. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned that there's, you know, sort of different kinds of machine learning and sort of the point of the book is, you know, you can read in the title is that perhaps there could be a sort of a master algorithm, a, a one that sort of combines sort of the strengths of all these various kinds of machine learning to create sort of, again, one one master algorithm that can sort of do it all. And, and you write about it much better than I can describe it. So I'll just read what you wrote. Uh, if it exists, the master algorithm can derive all knowledge in the world, past, present, and future, from data. Inventing it would be one of the greatest advances in the history of science. It would speed up the progress of knowledge across the board and change the world in ways that we can barely begin to imagine. The master algorithm is to machine learning what the standard model is to particle physics or the central dogma to molecular biology, a unified theory that makes sense of everything we know to date and lays the foundation for decades or centuries of future progress. It is our gateway to solving some of the hardest problems we face from building domestic robots to curing cancer. Uh, now, the book came out in 2016. It's 2018. How much closer are we to that? We are a lot closer. It's amazing just the progress that we've made uh, in these few years. Uh, companies are investing very heavily in machine learning now because the economic value is so large and, and, and so clear. And there's just a lot more machine learning research happening now than there was before. And there, there have been these leaps of progress, like, for example, with deep learning, this whole approach that's based on neural networks. Uh, it can do all sorts of things now that it couldn't before. So the algorithms are getting better. This process of unifying the different algorithms into one master algorithm is also farther along. We are actually pretty close to having unification of all the five. Uh, the question in a way is, once we have that unification and that master algorithm, will that be the end of the story? Uh, you know, will we be done? Will we have solved machine learning? Or will there be more to do? Some people think it's the form. I actually think that there are some very important ideas still missing, and we need to discover them. And in a way, machine learning experts may not be the ideal people to discover them because they are already thinking along the tracks of these particular paradigms that they belong to. So one of my hopes in writing the book was that maybe someone will read it and, and come up with those ideas that we're missing. And do you think sort of your, your view here is this is it a consensus view? Are you a, are you an are you an outlier? Or if I got together a, a a group of machine learning experts, they would say, "Yeah, that's that that's the goal, and we're and we're going to get there." There's a spectrum. There's more than one camp. There's the camp of machine learning researchers that very much believes in this idea of the master algorithm and is pursuing it. Uh, there's a, also a camp that says, "No, that is never going to happen. That's impossible." But you know, five or ten years ago, that latter camp had more. Um, what should I say, credibility than it does now. 
because look at all the successes that have happened and how much progress we have made. Some of these things are already unified, uh, but indeed, there's you know uh, you could have uh, either opinion. In this case, often the more ambitious machine learning researchers are the ones that do believe in a master algorithm. The ones that are kind of like more focused on the day-to-day -day things are the ones that you know tend to not see things that way. Mm -hmm. I should say, by the way, that there are researchers who believe that they already have the master algorithm. We don't need to invent it. So, for example, in deep learning, the algorithm that powers all these things from speech recognition to search to ad placement to translation to uh, uh, you know self-driving cars is called something called backpropagation. And if you look at all the things that backpropagation can now do. Uh, some people in that area say, well, backpropagation is the master algorithm, now we just need to apply it and refine it and so on. I actually don't think that's the case, but there are also people who think that, you know, that in one or another of these paradigms, they already have the master algorithm. Uh, one thing that really attracted me to the, the book was sort of your, your optimism um, about these technologies. I've had, you know, quite a few people on the podcast and talking about where technology is taking us. And a lot of the conversation ends up being, and I do want to ask you about this later, ends up being about sort of, you know, the downside, you know, the, you know, the robots are going to take all the jobs, you know, they're going to sort of destroy American culture, which is built on the car, but we're all going to have autonomous vehicles. So there goes our freedom. There goes this kind of base, you know, aspect of American culture. And what I always try to figure out is, so what is, you know, what is the, what is the story people can be told to make? To make the rest of us enthusiastic about where these technologies uh, are leading us. So, what what is sort of the the optimistic story about uh, how machine learning will make our lives better in the future? Well, first of all, there are countless concrete areas where machine learning is making things better and will make things better. Like, for example, in medical diagnosis, in fighting disease, it's just one after another, and that's what really matters. But on a, on a higher level. Uh, machine learning is just another technology. It's no different from other technologies that came before. And look at what has happened in the last 200 years. Overwhelmingly, technology has made things better. Our lives today are just incomparably better than they were. You know, a middle-class person in America today lives better than a king did 200 years ago, and it's because of technology. Machine learning and AI are just a continuation of that. Yes, there are things that can go wrong, but you know, technology just gives you power, right? Technology actually gives us more freedom. It gives us the ability to do things that we couldn't do before. And then we have to choose what we do with the technology. And we could choose to do bad things. And sometimes, unfortunately, we do. But overwhelmingly, on balance, we choose to do good things. And machine learning and AI are, are going to be no different. I mean, one of the things you write about is the idea of us having sort of these sort of, you know, dis these digital AI uh, avatars. So maybe when I apply for a job, First thing will happen is that my avatar will talk to the uh, avatar from the company to see if it's a good fit, find out about the job. That may be that may be sort of the first pass at the company deciding if they want to interview me. So they'll have like sort of these all these interactions. Uh, it sounds to me, you know, you know, you know, a pretty interesting possibility. But then I'll see then I'll watch, you know, science fiction television where they'll recreate th that exact scenario. But yet they'll have a down uh, kind of a negative spin on it. Well, well, they'll say, well, gee, you'll have this avatar, but the avatar will be self-aware and it'll be almost like rather than being your avatar helping you, it's actually your digital slave. So there's, there's kind of this weird, uh, you know, I don't know Luddite anti-technology, you know, current that, that is sort of running through the culture about all these advances. You have to remember that Hollywood is not the real world. Hollywood needs to tell interesting, engrossing stories 
And the way to tell interesting and grossing stories is to make things go wrong, right? If thing was, if, if everything was working beautifully well, then there would be no movie, there'd be no TV show. So you have to realize that there's this very big bias from, you know, the entertainment industry about, you know, the nightmare scenarios. Sure. And, and, and generally, I, I have found people sort of who are technologists to, to be more cautious in their forecasts than uh, than Hollywood screenwriters. But when I, I was watching one of your uh, YouTube uh, uh, talks. It might have been a TED, uh, a TED talk where you, you talk about we'll be able to edit our genes in the future, live for 100 more years, construct uh, augmented realities. Uh, why are you so confident? And I imagine a lot of that will be driven by machine learning that will that will achieve these kind of radical advances in our lifetime. Again, it's not just machine learning. So machine learning is one aspect of this, but there are many other things happening. We're seeing a lot of technological progress, and the progress builds on itself. So we actually have, you know, if you if you take the idea of exponential growth seriously or exponential improvement, then we're going to see as much improvement in the next 10 years as we saw in the previous 100. And we're going to see as much improvement in the next, you know, 100 years as we saw in the previous 1,000. Now imagine what things were like in the Middle Ages and how much, you know, how far we've come since then. And imagine where, if this exponential improvement continues, where we will be in 100 years. I think it will be hard to imagine, just like where we are today would have been hard to imagine 100 years ago. What did you think about the Google AI demo where it, it makes the reservation at the, at, the, uh, at the hair salon and it's obvious that the, the person taking the reservation thinks they're talking to a human? What did you, what did you think about that demo? I think from a technical point of view, it's impressive, it's progress. Uh, that the you know that the bot can sound so natural. Uh, this is definitely one of the goals of trying to make these so-called conversational AIs. These companies are all competing, you know, the Googles, the Microsofts, Amazons, etc., to create your virtual assistant. This avatar that you were just talking about. Again, since writing the book, it's just amazing how much has happened in just the last two or three years. They all want to be the one that provides this assistant for you that basically runs your whole life, right? And you know, probably 10 years from now, we won't know how to live. We will wonder how we ever live without it, right? You want something, you just talk to your assistant or it even starts doing those things for you before, uh, you know, you even realize you want them like, you know, the, the, the perfect butler. And, and Google is one of the companies that are in the lead on this. Uh, they've shown that this thing can converse more naturally and, you know, be more resourceful in uh, dealing with what comes up than was previously the case. Uh, having said that, you always have to take these demos with a very large grain of salt because, you know, one thing is what you can do on the demo. Another thing is what really happens uh, when everybody's using it. Siri sure. had, you know, very good demos many years ago, and we all know what its limitations are. So, you know, you have to take the demo uh, with, with a grain of salt. Indeed. I mean, some people, all they want to focus is on the limitations. I mean, I, I'm sure you read there was an uh, after that demo uh, there was sort of this op-ed in the New York Times by a couple of uh, AI researchers, and they wrote, they were very unimpressed. They wrote, today's dominant approach to AI has not worked out. If machine learning and big data can't get us any further than a restaurant reservation, even in the hands of the world's most capable AI company, it is time to reconsider that strategy. Uh, what, did, what did you make of that editorial? Yeah, so I know Gary very well. In fact, I was just chatting with him a couple of days ago after the editorial came out. And Gary is a machine learning skeptic, and I think it's good to have skeptics, right? Because there's, there's all these, there's always a danger of things being overhyped, and as much I think in some ways people today don't really understand what the potential of machine learning is. At the same time, there's also a lot of hype going on. So I think 
the good thing about editor that editorial and about what you know Gary and Ernie do in general is that it does bring things down to earth a bit and help people understand just how good or limited what you know Google has done is. At the same time, I think Gary and Ernie are like they're far too pessimistic about what's happening. I mean, they say the currently, as you said, the currently dominant approach to AI isn't working out. I mean, it's amazing that someone was, by which they mean machine learning, right? Machine learning is just going from one spectacular success to another, but their view is that it's not working out, right? So that to me is like way, way, you know, too much on the on the pessimistic side. I think what they say, and perhaps would say if they have more space, right? This was just an op-ed in the New York Times, is that machine learning as we have it today has certain limitations that will be hard to overcome. And to overcome those limitations, maybe you need to bring back some of that old-fashioned knowledge engineering-based AI, and you need to combine the two. In fact, in some follow-up discussion, this is this is actually what, what he was saying. And I agree with that. In fact, a lot of my research has been on combining machine learning uh, with knowledge representation. Again, uh, that, is that just that, is that just mean writing down the rules? So just like how life works, and you try to convert all all aspects into 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 rules that you can then feed into a machine. Yeah, and as you can imagine, this is a hopeless enterprise, right? Imagine writing down a program that completely specifies how your virtual assistant is going to work, and all the things that it needs to know, right? You'll never be done. Having said that, a pure machine learning approach that has almost no knowledge and just has to learn from data, that also has a hard time getting going. So what we've found actually works very well is to see the machine learning with a small amount of knowledge that then the data can leverage. So machine learning is induction, which is the opposite of deduction. Deduction lets you infer things that were already implicit in what you knew, right? So you think of it, can think of it as a knowledge lever. Machine learning is just a much bigger knowledge lever, right? You can take much less knowledge and create much more knowledge from that. So this is the whole trick is actually to use both knowledge and data to get somewhere that you couldn't with only one of them. And do you, I mean, uh, I mean, data helps fuel these, you know, machine learning algorithms. Um, but how important is actually uh, the data? I'm sure you've heard the sort of data is the new oil uh, analogy that it's going to be that's going to be the resource of the uh, 21st century. But is data really that important? I thought with the uh, the latest sort of AlphaGo Zero, which which you know it's extremely extremely impressive, its victory over like the other AlphaGos, but that it didn't even have data. It's, it it was just kind of given the rules to to how Go worked, and it figured out sort of novel strategies. So is is data always that important for these um, for these programs? Well, the data and the algorithm are both important. It's like nature and nurture, right? Algorithm, the algorithm is nature and data is nurture. And you really can't get too far if you only have one of them. The thing that is unusual about AlphaGo is that it's playing a game, so it can generate its own data by playing against itself. Right. This is really why, and you know, people have been you know playing games with AI like this since the 50s. Again, this is like a very very old idea. And it works amazingly well, right? The computer plays against itself, and it sees which version won, and then it, you know, improves on that version, plays those versions against themselves, and you can do this to your heart's content. But this is very unusual, right? Games are a very unique situation where the computer can generate its own data without limit. In most real-world problems, like, for example, robots, right? You want to have a home robot, you need to learn to manipulate things and not drop them or break them. Well, you can't play that game anymore. You really need ro real robots doing things in the real world, and you know that's much slower. So we need better algorithms that can that can get the same distance with a smaller amount of data. And this is where the machine learning research is very important. 
Right. So, uh, so do you do you like that 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 analogy? The first time I heard about it was, you know, in an Economist cover story that uh, that data is sort of the new oil. It's the uh, it's the key resource of the 21st century. Is, is that a useful way of thinking about data? I think that's a very useful analogy in the sense that you know, if you think of AI as the planet that we want to reach, machine learning is the rocket that's going to get us there, and data is the fuel for that rocket. So, in that sense, this is a very good analogy. And data, indeed, is extremely economically important today and is only going to become more so. So in some ways, this isn't a good analogy. Another way, it's a good analogy that like oil by itself doesn't do anything. It needs to be refined, processed, put into engines, etc. Same thing with data. The way in which the analogy is not very good is that data as an economic good behaves extremely differently from oil. First of all, oil exists in limited quantities and data essentially is unlimited. Uh, when I burn oil to, you know, run my car, then you can't burn it to run yours, whereas data, we can just copy it. So the market for data, of buying and selling data, is extremely different from the market for oil, because I can sell you my data and still have it. So in some ways, data is both much more valuable than oil, but also less, because, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these goods uh, that you actually don't lose it when you give it to somebody else. So it's very different. I mean, it's interesting that when you wrote the book, it was before sort of these, you know, these, uh, these, you know, this, this Facebook data leak scandal. And back then, you wrote that laws that forbid using data for any purpose other than the originally intended one are extremely myopic. And now there's all these ideas out there for sort of these new data rules, which, which really seem to me like they really want to sort of lock down the data. Are you are you concerned we're sort of that these privacy rules are taking, are are going in a direction where it's really just going to make it much harder? For companies and researchers to uh, get a hold of data to, to, to help create you no know, better algorithms? Yes, I'm very concerned. In fact, Europe is coming out with this general data protection regulation, right? It's coming into force on, on May 25th that, among other things, uh, has this notion that data can only be used for the purpose that it was originally gathered for, which sounds very well-intentioned, but is a terrible idea because most of the great uses of data are the unforeseen ones. If data could only be used for the purpose it was gathered for, we wouldn't have penicillin, and we wouldn't have x-rays, and we wouldn't have who knows what else. And it's the same thing with all of these you know, tech companies. They're continually using the data for new purposes to improve what they do to the benefit of the user. So a lot of these restrictions that people are thinking of putting on the use of data, uh, I mean, first of all, I think it's very premature. We don't really understand how to regulate these things yet. And in and in some ways, there's no need because no real harm has come to anybody from data sharing as opposed to data theft. And also, I think, frankly, they don't actually seem to understand how data works. And, you know, these regulations are actually uh, potentially quite harmful. They will be bad for innovation. Uh, you know, they will be, you know, we, the users, the consumers, the citizens will be worse off by having these restrictions. As I mentioned earlier, your book was on the Chinese president's bookshelf in this address. And uh, I, and, I, and I ran across this a quote by the uh, Alibaba founder, uh, Jack Ma, who said that uh, in the next three decades will be a significant change. The planned economy will become increasingly large because we have access to all kinds of data. We may be able to find the invisible hand of the market. Uh, do you think AI can uh, replace sort of markets and prices and make central planning work in the 21st century in a way it didn't do very well in the 20th century? This is a great question. I think AI can make the markets work much better. It can make democracy work much better. Unfortunately, it can also make authoritarianism work much better. It can also make central planning work much better. 
it, it, it all depends on how you use it. If you do this sort of ex experimental thing, like suppose that the Soviet Union, right? In the Soviet Union, everything was centrally planned, and of course, none of it worked. But if they had the computers that we have today, the central planning could have worked much better than it did then. Uh, so uh, the, the thing is, I think the next you know, few decades, we are going to see this context between democracy and between uh, you know, authoritarianism and between markets and, and central planning. And it's not a foregone, foregone conclusion. I think we, the ones who believe in Marxist and democracies, we need to use AI to show that, you know, markets and democracy with AI do work better than authoritarianism and, you know, and central planning with AI. China, or you should say, we should say the Chinese government uh, wants to prove the opposite, and it's not a foregone conclusion which way it's going to go. Right. And they, I mean, they're investing heavily in a variety of emerging technologies, including artificial uh, intelligence. I, I don't quite know what we're doing sort of nationally, certainly not as much of the Chinese as far as spending money, but does the U.S. need sort of a national AI, AI program since it's going to be such an important technology, both you know, in economics and also national defense? Do we need, uh, do we need a, a, some sort of big push program, and what would that even look like? We actually have a very good model for this, which is what happened in the Cold War. Uh, there was the Sputnik moment, and then DARPA was created, uh, precisely to do this, to develop the technology that was needed, both for military superiority and for economic superiority. And the good news is we won that war, right? That worked. And and part of why that worked is is, is exactly that research is not something that is well very well done by central planning, right? The U.S. actually has a fantastic innovation system, the best in the world still, in terms of there's some government funding for research at universities, and then there's this whole ecosystem that turns that research into practical applications, uh, like the venture capitalists, the startups, and so on. And this works very well. Uh, having said that, there is a certain amount of central push and central support that has to happen, and a certain amount of coordination between the companies and the government, which very much happened during the Cold War. Right? Companies like AT&T and IBM and so on, they collaborated extensively with the government. And, and, and the things that are a little worrisome today is that uh, China has that going on. This collaboration between the governments and the tech companies exists going in both directions, and, and each direction is important. That is not there in the case of the U.S. And the, the, you know, the understanding that this is a, you know, a national goal and a national priority to win this race, right? It's like a new race and it's a new Cold War. Uh, I think you know, the government needs to play its part and is not quite playing its part yet. At the same time, the people in the tech companies need to understand that it's important to get involved in this, right? I don't know if you saw there was this you know, little rebellion at Google from 3,000 employees who signed a letter saying like, no, you know, you're doing this collaboration with the Pentagon and that's evil. I think that's very dangerous. It's, it's not evil. What's evil is to not you know, fight this war and win it. But you wouldn't have the United States necessarily. I mean, there's a risk of sort of China's approach that it's going to be too top down. It'll be too much government bureaucrats figuring out where the investment should go. And uh, because I, I certainly think there's a temptation that's happened in the past where the U.S. has seen other countries begin to begin to catch up in technology that we instead of maybe doing a better job at what our strengths are, they try to mimic. There's an urge to mimic what those countries are, are doing. Um, what do you think? I agree. I what the U.S., again, should do is not mimic China, is learn from how it won the Cold War. Right. I think, you know, we actually do have a good model that we don't need to copy the Chinese. Having said that, uh, the Chinese model is actually not just purely top-down. It would be a very big mistake to underestimate that. 
There's right. a lot of bottom-up innovation going on in China. I mean, the Chinese people are extremely entrepreneurial, uh, except that this is just happening in this context where there's also an, um, a certain amount of, of top-down control and, and certain things that are, that are set by the government, but both of those things are going on. And the other thing to realize is that China, in a way, is an unprecedented challenge because, you know, the Soviet Union was a military and political rival to the U.S., but not an economic rival. You know, Japan, you know, back in its heyday was an economic rival, but not a political or military or ideological rival. China is all of those at once. And at the same time, it's a huge country, right? China is not a country of 100 or 200 million people. It's a country of 1.2 billion people. So this is a much bigger challenge, I think, than, you know, for all these reasons, than, than anything I think the U.S. has faced since World War II. And I think people need to wake up to it. Yeah, I mean that's sort of that, that's sort of what I've you know I've been writing and, and and talking about that the idea that whether through you know trade sanctions or something that we're going to somehow stop China from advancing and progressing technologically to me is is ridiculous. What we need to focus on is making sure that we stay at that leading edge of the frontier of the economic of the technological frontier by what we do, whether that's through more investment, better education. And some of the things you've been uh, talking about. I don't want to talk too much about the will the robots take all the jobs. But if I understand your view, it sounds like technology will help us. We, 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 we will work with technology. Uh, we will do different things as we work with technology. But it still sounds like that, that it would not surprise you that as the decades go by that we certainly see – higher structural unemployment, for instance, than we than we have in the past. And that slowly these technologies will sort of modify the labor market and make it look much different than what it looks like today. I think we need to distinguish between the short, medium term, you know, the next 10, 20 years and the long term. I think in the long term, it is quite possible that AIs and robots will do everything that humans do and we won't need to work. We will uh, you know, then have to figure out how to distribute all that wealth that uh, machines create. But that is the long-term future. It's nowhere near. In the foreseeable future, what's going to happen is that, yes, uh, technology and AI uh, will cause changes in the labor market, but overall, uh, we're not going to lose jobs. People have been worrying about technology destroying jobs from day one. Every decade for the last 200 years, there's, there's a job scare coming from one direction or another. And then, and then it never materializes. I mean, think about it. 200 years ago, 98% of Americans were farmers. 98% of us are not unemployed now. We're just doing jobs that we couldn't possibly have imagined back then. Like, for example, web developer, app developer. There's millions of people making a very good living doing these things today. You know, we didn't even know that such a category was possible, you know, even 20 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. So I think in the near term... You know, this is not to minimize the disruptions that will happen. Disruptions will happen. Some people will lose their jobs, but there will also be a lot of new jobs created, both in new categories of job, but there also be, you know, people say like, oh, yeah, but you can't turn a truck driver into a programmer. And maybe some you can, but many you can't. But the jobs for those truck drivers don't have to be in programming. It's like, well, uh, you know, transportation is automated, so goods cost less, so people have more money, so maybe they buy bigger, better houses. So there's more jobs for construction workers. And construction workers are not about to be replaced by AI. And maybe some of those truck drivers can become construction workers or some of these other things. So, you know, there'll be motion in the job market, but I don't think there will necessarily be a net loss of jobs. I think the most important thing is that 
most jobs will be, they will not disappear, but they will be changed by AI. In each one of our jobs, some of the things that we do today, we will automate and then we will still have our jobs and we'll be doing the things that we wish we had time for. Or the computers will just do a lot more, for example, doing the research for writing a, a piece, for example, an article in a newspaper, right? We will have, you'll have this army of virtual assistants that enables you to do a lot more. So people need to, uh, you know, think about how to take advantage of AI in their jobs. And that's actually how they'll keep their jobs safe, right? The way you keep your job safe from automation is by automating it yourself, automating the parts uh, you don't like to do to actually focus on the ones that you do like to do. Let's end with this. Uh, Henry Kissinger uh, recently wrote an essay uh, arguing that the AI, the advance of AI will bring sort of bring about the end of the Enlightenment, that we're sort of unprepared for this change philosophically, intellectually, that, that the advent of the printing press allowed the age of reason to replace the age of religion. And now he's concerned that AI will supplant the age of reason, but he's not sure what what, and he doesn't think we're thinking hard enough about what comes next. I don't know if you'd have a chance to take a look at that essay and what you thought if you did. Yeah, I read that piece, and frankly, I was a little shocked uh, in a number of ways. Uh, if you read that piece, you get the impression that Kinsinger thinks that nobody has been thinking about the <laughs> philosophical implications of AI. People have been thinking about them from day one. Right? Philosophers have made careers out of thinking about the philosophical implications of AI. AI researchers, or at least a subset of them, have thought very deeply about the philosophical implications of AI. So this is you know, an issue, a question, you know, a, a debate that has been going on for a long time. And it's not some you know, commission of eminent men like you know, uh, Kissinger proposes that is actually going to figure this out. Sure, there might be a place for that, but it's not like suddenly AI is upon us and no one has thought about it. But I think you know, the bigger issue with that piece is the following. I completely disagree with his premise. I think AI, just like the printing press led to the first enlightenment, AI is going to lead to a new enlightenment. It's not going to be the end of the enlightenment. What AI does is essentially massively decrease the cost of intelligence. It just makes intelligence cheaper. Therefore, we can have more of it. And the Enlightenment was all about reason and intelligence and thinking about things and, you know, looking at the data, you know, empiricism, you know, rationalism, etc., figuring things out. AI just gives us way more power to do this than we had before. So actually, I think AI is the best thing that has happened for the Enlightenment in, you know, in, in recent times. This is not to say that there aren't dangers and there are things that could go wrong and we need to guard against us again. Some things in the Enlightenment also went wrong. But I think fundamentally, it's not so much that AI is the end of the Enlightenment as that AI is a new uh, you know, breath of air uh, for the Enlightenment. My guest today has been Pedro Domingos, author of The Excellent, The Master Algorithm, How the Quest for the Ultimate Learning Machine Will Remake Our World. Mr. Domingos, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. 